Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Today's show is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel, and we're discussing transitioning businesses to the next generation. As you may know, our law firm is participating in charitable giving in celebration of our 25th anniversary. So before we start the show, we want to give a big shout out to all of the charities that we have supported thus far this year. Women's Resource Center to End Domestic Violence, ALS Association of Georgia, Lawson Found Youth, Hillside Hospital, Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University, Tabitha's House of Fusion Ministries, Atlanta Pet Rescue, Hero Box, Street Smart Youth Project, Inc., and Clifton Sanctuary Ministries. Go to Pinterest.com, estate slash estate dispute, and follow us for updates on our donations. And now it's time to introduce our guests. Uh, we have with us today Stephanie Brun-Deponte, who's a senior associate at Family Business Consulting Group, and James Spratt, who's a partner at the Bowden Spratt Law Firm. Before we start with um, uh, the topics, I'd like uh, each of you just to take a minute and, and just introduce yourselves to the audience. Stephanie? Hi, thank you. Um, so I'm Stephanie. I'm with the Family Business Consulting Group. We're an advisory firm that works exclusively with families that own and typically operate substantial uh, businesses. We help them navigate that intersection of family and business, which can be complex, often putting together governance structures, either on the family side or establishing boards of directors for the business, uh, and helping families at multiple generations uh, navigate uh, complex uh, challenges in terms of their relationships. I'm Jim Spratt with the Bowden Spratt Law Firm. We're what's referred to as a trust and estates boutique law firm, which means we do estate planning and estate administration, which includes business succession planning. Okay. Um, so before we start talking about the um, strategies for successful business transition, why don't we at least talk about um, what the data shows on how successful businesses generally are at transitioning from one generation to the next. Do uh, either of you want to... Well, you know, certainly uh, our founder, John Ward, did a lot of research in this area over the years. And, and the statistics that's most often cited is this notion that about two-thirds of businesses will fail at each generational transition. So if you think about it, if you have 100 family businesses in the first generation, maybe 33 will survive to that second generation transition. Of those 33, 11 will make it to the third generation, and you're getting into some pretty rare air by the time you get to the fourth generation. And when we're talking about those numbers, let's, let's, let's remind our listeners that those are businesses that were already successful in the first generation. Correct. We're not talking about those that may be struggling at the end of the first generation. Right. These are businesses that otherwise really should have been able to succeed. They were in strong financial footing, and it's it's more this uh, transition piece that created a tremendous amount of stress or disruption. The estate planning wasn't done properly. The relationships weren't solid. The governance wasn't in place. There was a whole host of reasons that might have led to, to the demise. And Jim, has that been your experience as well? Yeah, you know, there's a saying, uh, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Uh, we know that in our culture, but it, uh, that uh, concept uh, translates into about every language. Um, and it's true not only of uh, small businesses or family businesses, but uh, wealth in, uh, in general. I've heard it said that uh, 
you know, the first generation creates the wealth, the second generation assimilates the wealth, the third generation enjoys the wealth, and the fourth generation mourns the loss of the wealth and engages in ancestor worship. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well then, on that note, uh, why don't we talk about um, the things that people can do to, to improve those odds. And I guess the first thing to really talk about is, is when's the best time to start discussing succession planning with your clients? I mean, we encourage people, we often say succession planning should be a process and not an event, right? And so, you know, ideally you want a long runway to get all the different pieces in place and, and people up to speed. So, you know, a minimum of five, if not 10 years in advance of when you anticipate that that transition will take place. It, it really does take years, not months to get this done properly is, is our experience. And when you say when you anticipate it, um, the problems, of course, we see, we see all the disputes, right. is that it's very, very hard to anticipate when you're really leaving the business. Correct. And a lot, especially when you're dealing with the founders whose identities are so tied into the business, one of the challenges is that they may have an idea in their head, but they're very resistant to articulating it. And often their idea in their head is, you know, frankly, I'm going to die with my boots at my desk, right? And, and so, and frankly, if it's their business, that's their right but the consequences to having that uh, mindset is very problematic if you're not willing, at least concurrently, to think about, you know, what's our crisis situation when that date eventually happens? Do we have in place the processes that will support the resist, you know, the remaining management team, the family ownership group, et cetera? So, you know, Dad, you can stay at your desk until the bitter end if you like, but that should not preclude you from planning. And, and you're very right. I mean, so many folks, you know, nobody wants to contemplate their mortality. So it's, it's not surprising that people will resist having these conversations. Right, but, but, the, but the founder rarely sits at his desk thinking, I need to go talk to my business planner or my attorney about transitioning. Mm -hmm. That topic doesn't come up. Although I imagine, Jim, with your practice, you may not see entrepreneurs coming to you with that question or that idea. You just see them coming to you with estate planning issues, and that, that may raise the questions in, in that kind of discussion. That's correct. Many of our clients are very aware of the estate tax uh, ramifications of dying with their uh, business. And so the time to start planning is now, early and often, because if you have a long runway, as Stephanie uh, put it, there's a lot of things that you can do to transition the value of your business uh, over the course of years. You never want to be in a situation where the full value of your business is subject to the estate tax, uh, because at that point you're valuing it on a control basis. And if you can, over a period of years, transfer little pieces of it, uh, you're transferring non-controlling interest in the business, and there's a lot better outcome from an estate and gift tax standpoint if you do that. But it takes an awareness and a willingness and uh, time uh, to do that and uh, uh, a consistency. What we often see in that context where we see very good estate planning, <clears throat> where we've seen control issues and marketability issues being used in pieces for estate tax planning, when it gets to our desk, and unfortunately that's when we're having a problem, it looked a lot like they didn't figure out, okay, we know how to transition it. We've gotten certain rules. For example, we're going to have to hold the business a certain period of time to establish for the estate tax to clear, but they haven't given a lot of thought to governance, how it's actually going to work. How do you, or let me say it differently, are your clients receptive to you as a lawyer who is a very distinguished and reputable estate planner? How receptive are they to your telling them, you know, I'm getting this piece for you, but you're going to need to talk to a Stephanie or somebody else to talk about or with me 
how you're going to govern it and how you transition this to the next. How receptive are they? Well, you hope they're very receptive because um, lawyers are very good with dealing with uh, concrete issues and uh, helping a client get from A to B. Um, people with Stephanie's training are very good at uh, ascertaining uh, what the, uh, I guess, more intangible issues are that, as Craig, as you're indicating, are, you know, in the long run, probably more important than the technical tax issues that the lawyers are, are dealing with. And so depending on the size of the business and the sophistication of the client, they get that. And they're very interested in working with someone like uh, Stephanie and, and her firm. But some, some are not. Some are clear that they want uh, the control to pass to uh, a spouse or a child or a committee of children. And that's the way they want it, and they don't want to know that there's any problems with that. But you would hope that they would work with someone that could uh, sort of ferret out what the uh, real uh, uh, governance uh, issues are in a family. Let's, 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 let's give you a, a, uh, an assumption that you've got that family member, the founder, who is, in fact, the slightest bit resistant to talking about anything other than absolute control. How do you urge him or get him or her to say, you know, this is a challenge for you. If we don't think about it, then you may have more problems than you realize without losing your client. Well, <laughs> um, they, well they, they have to, first of all, they have to understand that there are credible businesses out there like uh, Stephanie's uh, firm and, and, and other ones that um, – that, that are skilled at uh, working with families from a, a governance standpoint and that the type of work that they do is very different from what uh, trust and estates uh, lawyers do, both from a from a experience and background standpoint, but also from sort of a, a, a fee standpoint. Lawyers tend to work on an hourly basis. Stephanie, I'm not sure how y'all work, whether it's more Same project way. or hourly, but... It's just, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a different type of, uh, of uh, function than what lawyers typically do. What I would add, though, is that, you know, important is education, right? And I think that you can talk about things like, for example, you were alluding to the idea of minority shareholder discounts, right? So as you're doing estate planning, there, there may be some structures that are built in in terms of the buy-sell agreement that makes sense and that are good from a tax planning standpoint. I have seen many, many cases where very intelligent people, either they can't wrap their head around that, you know, some of the some of the sibling partners or whatever, or their children don't really get it. And I'm sure you see the consequences of stuff like that, where people are are carrying on and, and crying about why is this the price that I would be you know, selling my shares to back to the business for, et cetera. And, and what that speaks to is not having laid the groundwork, right? You really need to spend time with all of your stakeholders. And, and this is the challenge is you really, you need maximum transparency so that people kind of know what's going to happen. And to your point about these controlling business leaders, right? They're, they're not keen for that. They're very happy to keep things close to the vest. Uh, but but our role, I'm sure this is the same thing for you and, and for Jim, I mean, our role in advisory is always to be able to speak truth to power. 
And sometimes that's hard, right? I mean, these are individuals, I know some of the business leaders I work with, you know, they, they run enormous enterprises. They are very used to getting their way. They're very used to having people tell them that they're right. Uh, and to have to say to them, you know what, this is not going to work uh, and you really need to look at it differently, uh, that that takes some skill and, and you have to build trust, right? All of us work in trusted relationships with our clients uh, and so they have to have enough trust and comfort with us that they can hear and we have to have the skill to tell them those difficult things in a way that they can hear it. Well, well the problem it leads to with uh, the planning Jim is talking about is is you, you're able to effectively transition the value of the business to the next generation but but the control generally remains with the with the founder, with the entrepreneur. Correct. Well, and that the challenge too with that is that um, there, you know, there can be the legal control, but there can also be sort of the um, legitimate control, right? Where the business owner, in the business itself, from an operational standpoint, even if he or she has transitioned the actual shares to their heirs, everybody's talking to them, right? They have the credibility in the business, and so that can create tension and frustration, you know, in terms of who's really in control, and, and we certainly see a lot of challenges around Jim, that. One one thing that often surprises me is, uh, you know, business owners are reluctant to uh, give up control, which which sort of shuts them down. What they don't understand, and Adam's alluded to it, is that you need to look at two different things. One is the value of the business, and the other is the control of the business. And they're two totally different things. Regardless of the form of organization of the business, we can separate value from control. And the, uh, the sort of uh, wealth transfer strategies that we do are almost always transferring non-voting or minority interests, uh, keeping control in, uh, with the, the founder or within the generation of the founders. And so um, that's something that uh, a lot of business, don't, business owners don't understand. They believe that once they've given away 51% of the value of the business, that all of a sudden they've lost control, and that's not the case at all. Yeah. That's a great point. Right, you're, listening to, <clears throat> you're listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking today with James Spratt and Stephanie Brun de Ponte, and we're discussing transitioning business to the next generation. Uh, let me follow up on, on what, um, what we're talking about here. We've got to transition to the next generation, which means you've got to educate and train the next generation. Do you have... Um, uh, an idea about how and when you begin this and what procedure entrepreneurs should uh, engage in to do this? Uh, certainly, I do a lot of work with next generation groups. And uh, like I said, the more runway you can have, the better it is. I mean, I've worked with family groups where I'm starting actually to engage with young adults who might be in their late teens or early 20s. There's no anticipation of them coming into any kind of ownership role for decades. But we are starting to help them understand what does it mean to be a shareholder in a privately owned business? And then how do you collaborate effectively with either your siblings or your cousins. And so again, uh, it, it, it takes very uh, long-sighted thinking to engage in that kind of process uh, in order to get folks to have the time and, that they need to, to really assimilate this, you know, this responsibility that they're going to be taking on and sharing. When we, when we see this, we see that children have different attributes, different interests. And so some children might be interested and some may not. How do you navigate when we're talking about what's going to happen, both education and in governance, when you're going to have unequal roles? Right. And that's a great question. And we see that all the time. But like you literally cannot expect that that won't be a fact. OK, uh, so in, your in families, you know, siblings are uh, 
they will typically differentiate, right? So in a, in a family system, there'll be, you know, some that are more the driven ones, some that are more the funny ones. Some, you know, so we do have roles in our family system. Uh, and then that will then translate in terms of how do we interact with each other and work. And you're absolutely right. Some are, you know, when I work with siblings or cousin groups, I'll have a group of maybe seven or eight and two of them are really keen, you know, let's meet with Stephanie quarterly. This is great. We need to really learn. This is so exciting, this opportunity that we have. And others are like, yeah, I'd rather go to the frat party. Like, what do you mean I got to come to this meeting? Right. And and that, you know, that can be true in young adults. But even in 30 and 40 year olds, you're going to be having some who are really committed. They are looking forward to this opportunity and this responsibility, or at least they take it very seriously. And others who, you know, might not be as, uh, long-term minded or maybe more selfish and just kind of like, what's in it for me? I just want a dividend check. Leave me alone. I don't want to come to all these meetings. What is this governance stuff? This is, you know, this is uninteresting to me. So you have to understand that that will, you know, that there will be that disparity and you can't let um, the aspiration for, for perfection kind of get in your way of good enough. Jim, can you plan for that? I mean, in many businesses that we see, we have one active child. So you've got a founder who may or who basically selects or self-selects the next generation who's going to lead. And you've got some kids in the business and you've got some kids out of the business with equal shares, which sometimes brings some resentment as to how the money's being spent. Are there ways to plan around that or advise so that the documents themselves or the business structure itself accommodate that? Yes, you, you, you can develop a, a, a business structure regardless of the, the form of the entity, whether it's a corporation or a partnership or a, an LLC, so that the uh, ownership structure um, sort of uh, provides a balance of uh, power between uh, individuals who are involved running the business and those who are sort of uh, passive uh, owners of the business. Um, oftentimes there are um, different uh, uh, metrics or, or milestones that the business needs to achieve in terms of uh, distributions. Um, and if those distributions are not um, uh, met, those expectations are not uh, met, then it may give the outside uh, family members uh, rights that, uh, that they uh, have to maybe change management. Um, but you know, you, you, can, you can craft it uh, however you want to sort of create a balance of power between those who are uh, sort of have the keys to the kingdom and those who are really uh, depending on uh, cash flow from uh, the business to maintain their lifestyle. Well, we actually see you know, two different situations typically that come up. One where uh, the, the founding generation wants to leave the, the company equally to all the children, even though some or, or, or many of them may not work in it. And that tends to lead to situations where, where children outside the business can outvote the one who's actually in the business running it. You also see sometimes where the, where the child in the business gets a greater share because they're actually there working and running it or because they're much older and they receive shares earlier. And so they end up having a, an overriding control over what happens to the business, sometimes to the detriment of the remaining children who are not in the business. Or, or the perceived detriment. <laughs> not always really a detriment. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and it's, I mean, I, we see those examples as well, and there's strengths and weaknesses to both approaches, right? And and so often what I'll say to families is try and look it out, look out one or two more generations, right? So if you're making a decision about 
uh, keeping more authority or control among your family members who are working in the business, that makes sense. And there's a logic to it in terms of this generation. But if you go out to the next generation, what if the greatest business leader your family's ever seen is a descendant from one of your kids who doesn't work in the business and has a lower ownership right? So then you're creating a skewed reality that may be disadvantageous going forward. Um, But I think, you know, like Jim was alluding to, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can structure this. What's important, and you guys talked about this earlier, is this notion of governance, right? And what we really encourage folks to do is to establish a board of directors that includes independence, right? Because you want to have folks who are really respected by all the shareholders and who don't have a dog in this fight and, can, and who can have some objectivity around, you know, is Cousin Jimmy doing a good job running the business or not? How do you get the real independent. Where I see a lot of the family business is, is that it's a family friend, the the uncle. Yeah, that's not an independent. And But even when you get the independent, no one has often taught them that they actually are there to be independent. And, and how do you educate that person and the family in choosing that person? Because we find independence on family-run businesses to largely be sitting right, and doing that, nothing. That's so true. And, and and it's interesting that you talk about that these independents. I have so many, I, you know, we put a lot of boards of directors together. And I've had, you know, boards, a company that has an established board with independents. Maybe they've had independents on their board for 20 years. And they'll say things to me like, yeah, we're Don's advisors. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not, the charter says otherwise. Don actually wants you to behave differently. Uh, but you're right. Sometimes those directors see themselves as, you know, I'm kind of a sound board and I'm here to be helpful. And, you know, in a family business, directors, you actually want a good balance between insight and oversight. It's not it's not a publicly traded company, right? So the way that the directors interact with management should not be the same, because that's one of the huge competitive advantages that family businesses have, is they can have a much longer term you know, time horizon that a publicly traded company does not have because the directors in a publicly traded company, their only metric is around, you know, financial returns for the, for the shareholders in a family business, you have a lot more metrics that matter. And so that, you know, you need to have directors who get that and you, you have to find directors who are true independents. And by the way, you guys cannot be independent directors because if you're the attorney, you are not independent. I can't be an independent director. Your accountant is not an independent director. Independent director is a CEO of a, of a strong business that's maybe three or five years ahead of where you are today and has a lot of insight and, and wisdom to share with you on how to get to where you're going. You're, you're a little fast. Adam and I aren't ever going to draft the document. <laughs> so, so we may be eligible, but let's leave that aside. One of the issues that we see is the family entities for either tax reasons or generation uh, uh, distribution reasons has put the entity into a structure like a trust or a a family limited partnership that owns parts. And when you start having these, the duties of a trustee and the duties of the partnership really are a lot more similar to a, a publicly traded company where you have duties to the owners. How do you maneuver in that? Because you may have conflicts with the trustee or what is the long horizon for a family business that doesn't necessarily exist in a trust or in a family limited partnership. Well, this is a obviously a developing uh, area of the law, um, particularly in Georgia. There's not a whole lot of law on just exactly what the uh, b- barriers of those relationships are. 
um, it's a, suffice it to say that it is fraught with um, potential legal problems for uh, the trustee who is wearing uh, several hats, uh, an insider in the business who's drawing a salary and bonuses and controlling the distribution. Well, you just made an assumption that may be a problem that's solvable, that the trustee will also be the insider. One of the suggestions might be that the trustee not be an insider. Correct. But oftentimes, the, it's all, you know, it's one person wearing many, many different hats. And I think that's the issue that you're alluding to, Craig, is that uh, whoever is wearing those hats uh, also has uh, some bullseyes pointed uh, or, or drawn on, on their backs. Uh, it's a lot of uh, difficult uh, duties, conflicting duties oftentimes, that have to be navigated. And, and, and frankly, we've got two very high-profile cases percolating through the Georgia appellate system. One's already gone to the Supreme Court and is going back to the trial court with this very issue. So ignore what's going to happen in the lawsuit because we can always predict and be wrong. How can you as a planner or as an advisor help the families who are using these structures largely to have generation skipping or to do something else? How can you advise them to avoid these obstacles? And and it's a natural obstacle where your alleged trustee or outsider is also the insider. And and a lot of times these these structures are, are put in place for the management issues we were talking about before. If you put the company into a trust, for the benefit of the next generation, you don't have to worry about the uh, shares of ownership being spread all over the place and diluted. You've, you've left control in an entity. So with that. Well, you get back to maybe an independence issue that Stephanie mentioned. And so maybe your trustees should be uh, independent. Maybe they shouldn't be uh, insiders in the business. And then you get back to the issue of um, are there mechanisms in your governance documents that provide for liquidity, meaning that if a trust holds an interest in a company that's a, a non-marketable, uh, non-controlling interest. Is there some right on the part of uh, the uh, that uh, shareholder to uh, gain liquidity through uh, uh, the ability to force the company to buy them out, buy out under cer- certain circumstances, buy out for a particular price, um, just to... Are you finding your clients receptive to that? Um, it depends on the situation. Um, it depends on what the the uh, composition of the family is. Um, in situations where you've got uh, blended families, where you have children from different marriages, if you have uh, spouses where the, the, the children are not the... And I do want to jump in. This is the majority of America. It is. Percentage-wise in every other way. Well, but... but Parents and business owners that are in that sort of family uh, dynamic are are very conscious of uh, these sorts of mechanisms that need to be in place in order to provide fairness for everybody down the road. The the only other thing I would add on the on the trust question because I mean you're bringing up a really good point about whether the trusts are a- outside independence or or if they're inside and and that there's different issues on that. But I would say in either case, uh, again, it's back to education. You need to train the the trustees about what does it mean to be that in that role in the context of a family business that and and how do we help them and indemnify them as necessary that the rules need to be optimally if we're really thinking about the long-term interests of of all these stakeholders and the beneficiaries uh we need to look at it with a slightly non-traditional prism and likewise you need to have beneficiaries uh 
step up to responsibilities as if they were decision makers. And you don't really want to, to breed a whole generation of passive beneficiaries where, you know, daddy's taking care of me in perpetuity. You know, I'm 70 years old and I don't know how to make an adult decision. Uh, that's that's toxic. But that's, the, that's the flip side of what we often see, which is the beneficiaries have no power. Correct. You know, they're beneficiaries, but they have no influence over the trustee. And that's not that's not optimal. Yeah. Well, I think family members need to know that there's a responsibility to being a good owner. Yeah. And, you know, they, siblings may criticize um, their siblings that are inside the business, and there's a, oftentimes a lot of resentment. But those same siblings that are feeling resentment need to realize that there's a responsibility to being a, a good owner, and right. that's part of the education and the governance process. And they need to respect and appreciate how hard it is to be the decision maker, right? So they may resent that, you know, their their brother was always the golden child and he was given the, the, the keys to the throne, et cetera. Well, let's assume they're going to resent it. Right. Yeah. But uh, some of them don't, but, but, but many of them do. The reality is we need to help them understand that being in that position and having to make the hard calls that's hard, you know, and, 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 and you want to build respect, mutual respect both ways, that the, those who are owners and don't actively work in the business appreciate and respect all the hard work that their siblings or cousins are doing, running and growing their wealth. And similarly, that those who are operating the business appreciate that they have, you know, stakeholders and investors on the side who, to whom they owe some transparency and good communication. Th those outsiders shouldn't tell them how to do their job. And as an aside, they owe what's called a fiduciary duty, Correct. They, they, which, which is the risk. We are listening, you are listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Adam Gasowitz and Craig Frankel are your hosts today from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasowitz Frankel. We're talking, and our guests today are James Spratt Jr. and Stephanie Brun de Bonte, and we are discussing transitioning business to the next generation. I want to follow up something that Jim said. We talk about uh, the blended families. They know it when they see it, so to speak, and that I actually want to point out that when, when many people don't realize that the blended family is going to be their children, and they're going to be the blended family. And as the family has put their, their, their state plan into effect, they haven't planned that one of them is going to die. And the transition after a patriarch or matriarch passes creates things. But I did want to go something so – that, that is something that I, I, I'm seeing a lot of where it's the next generation that has the challenges that the first generation could not have anticipated because they were too young. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing where the person in control – that is chosen perhaps very well, assumes that he or she has the same exact rights and powers that the patriarch had. And most founders of businesses, one, work their way and suffered along the way. But at the end of their life, they're doing okay. And they also run as many of their businesses' expenses, legitimately or illegitimately, that they can through the business. And so one thing we see often is that the successor, the agreed-upon successor deems that he or she should get the exact same benefits at the exact same level when they come in, and there's almost resentment from the day one from the other, what you're calling passive stakeholders. How do you, I know you're going to say educate, but how do you <laughs> educate the family so you can address this? Well, you're making a great point because that does happen very often because it's the model that you know. Right. I mean, dad or mom was the decider. They made all the decisions. They, they had some perks and what have you that everybody was able to tolerate when it came from dad. When all of a sudden it's coming from, you know, your brother, Mark, 
wow, it does not feel the same. You don't you don't see it in the same way. Uh, and so siblings need to understand that even if there is one, as you said, uh, well-deserved leader of the business, and, and that person should be empowered to to run the operation in, in, in a way because everybody will benefit from that, that they cannot translate that to uh, I get the same. I mean, and we I can think of an example where a family, you know, and the, and the, the father fed into this dynamic because the son was really stressing about he was he had promised his wife that they're going to be able to go on vacation. But then at the end of the year, you know, it was a Christmas break or whatever, things got really, really busy and he couldn't figure out a way to go on vacation with her family and this and that. And so he was getting pressure at home. And the father just said, well, just take the company plane. No biggie. You know, go to your vacation. But the siblings went ballistic, right, when they figured out that their brother had used the company plane for his essentially his personal use. Now, it was his personal use because he was so busy with work to try and get stuff done and he was paying for it appropriately and whatever, but that didn't take away the resentment. So, Well, but a lot of that's a, a communication problem. I mean, right. there may be rational reasons why he's doing something, but from the outside, his siblings see what they want to see. Correct. You're absolutely right, because they have that built-in bias. He was the golden child. He's getting access to all these goodies and perks. He gets to join the country club or what have you. All this stuff that looks like it's just nothing but, you know, fun and boondoggles, when in truth, it represents work and a lot of effort. Uh, but siblings often, don't see it that way. Oftentimes, that sibling in the uh, business has a Maybe an accurate, but oftentimes uh, inaccurate view of what their contribution to the business has done to to build the value, and so they are able to rationalize uh, this sort of uh, behavior um, because they think that uh, well, it wasn't really dad; it was a lot me too. Mm-hmm. And we see that a lot. We also see where the sibling rivalries don't go away, and 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 so I hear often. I've heard a ninety-year-old woman talk about her brother, where she said, well, he was always that way. (laughs) And she's really referring to incidents when they were eight or nine. So how do you avoid that? And and Adam mentioned, I agree with him, communication. But how do you get them to actually do the communication and do the transparency once they've now taken over in the next level? How do we actually implement it? I mean, I think from a practical standpoint, it's about, you know, making sure the right conversations are having are being held in the right place, right? So this notion about um, behavior or history or what have you, that shouldn't be coming up at the boardroom, right? Maybe you need a family council or a family meeting or a different forum where some of those resentments or irritations, they need to get aired, right? I mean, a lot of times in family businesses, we find folks are very conflict avoidant. Your most important financial, you know, your financial, strongest financial asset, your most important personal relationships, and if you work in the business, your professional identity, they're all tied to the same boat. Nobody wants to rock that boat. So you have a a conflict avoidance, but resentment enhancement. Correct. I mean, but then and then what ends up happening is that because people won't address the issue, you know, they'll avoid it. Either they're sniping all the time and in in inappropriate forms, and that's a problem. So if you can get them to address it in the right place. Because if they don't talk about it, then the challenge is the smallest little thing will set them off and, you know, then then they're in litigation. Well, Jim, from a planning perspective, when you're dealing with these types of issues, you end up with, you know, we often end up with a second spouse. Um, second spouse may or may not get along with the children. The second spouse may not be working in the business, but the children are. The entrepreneur dies. Children take over the business. How do you protect the surviving spouse? Or, you know, similarly, if you have a second spouse where you've had more children, now you've got two generations, two different generations of half-siblings, some of which are in the business, some of which are not. I mean, it, it, I know it creates drafting challenges, but is it even a, a something that's feasible to do? 
very hard to do from a drafting standpoint. What you what you hope you have in that situation is enough wealth in the family so that the business can go one direction, and the other wealth can go to the spouse who's not the the mother of the mother or father of the children. Um, and if you don't have enough wealth to do that, I mean, this is one of the areas where life insurance comes in. You 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 supplement uh, the estate with uh, life insurance so that you can kind of separate um, uh, the family members from uh, you know being in the sort of situation that uh, Stephanie is going to have to come in and uh, sort out. Well, let's same talk thing, about same thing is true for siblings that are in the business and those that are out of the business. Uh, hopefully, there's enough wealth to you know sort of pay off the uh, siblings that are not going to be in the business or the, the spouse. Let's talk about that for a minute because one of the options in business transition is that it doesn't stay a family business. Either you create a sale because the family's not ready or you buy out some of the people who are disinterested. Let, those are strategies you can use, but let's take a step back. How do you plan for those strategies? You want to get insurance, you've got to pay it and have enough money to do it early on. And you've got to have a realistic family that's saying, which I think is very hard for a founder, you know what? My next generation isn't ready for this, or I need to present to, to produce more liquid assets. How do you get your family to talk about that, which is kind of scary? Right. And, I, and again, I think the, the more transparent you are in advance and, and engage people in these conversations, sometimes, I, I, I don't know, I mean, you must see this a lot with estate planning, right, where parents engage in all this complex estate planning, this and that, you know, that is going to have a direct consequence on their children, but they don't even have conversation one with their children about what they want or what makes okay, sense Jim, for them. Jim, put you on the spot. How many of your families that are wealthy families, that let's say they're in their 60s now and they're doing their estate plan, and I'm going to hold you to this, of course. How many actually, you probably advise, they all talk to their families. How many actually do, percentage-wise? Just barely over a majority. <laughs> <laughs> that leaves an awful wide margin, then. So uh, you, you talk about education, but you, know, you can't ignore human nature. So you can educate the next generation all you want. You can educate the trustee who might be managing the trust that owns the business all you want. But, but how, do you, how do you account for the human nature that, that creeps in about, uh, well, you mentioned uh, you know, rationalizing behavior, but you got that. You've got, you know, sometimes greed takes over, times, sometimes this sense that, you know, I'm doing all this for the business. My siblings don't work in it. I deserve more. And so you start, you know, reaching into the till more than you ought to. And that, that's hard to educate around. No, you know what that comes down to? I recently said this to, to wealthy clients, local wealthy clients, and I said, look, you know, you, you clearly have great values. You live well below your means. You've raised your children well. You are 90% of the way there. I mean, really, it, it's almost impossible to overcome good parenting, just like it's very, very hard to overcome bad parenting. And, you know, entitlement is the most toxic uh, outcome, frankly, that, that will really derail a family yeah, business. But, but, we, but we know good, good, most entrepreneurs are not great parents, not, be, <laughs> not because they don't have the ability to, but they often don't have the time to. Right. You right. know, the kids see dad, you know, late at night or a few minutes on the weekend before he goes back into the office. Um, no, that, and, that's a, and that's definitely a challenge. And, you know, what we often see in our world is these entrepreneurial founders that are, you know, I mean, this is the backbone of our economy, right? I mean, these individuals have built enterprises, and they tend to either be put up on a pedestal and really, really revered as these larger-than-life figures whom they are, 
or they can really be demonized because there can be a lot of collateral damage. You're right. I mean, they don't have the time. You know, often there's jealousy between their children because, frankly, the favorite child has always been the business. Uh, and so that can create a whole host of challenges and dynamics as you as you look to make that transition. Um, you know, and so... I think I think entrepreneurs really uh, have to to lean on their spouses to to play a key role, and and we often talk about mom as the chief emotional officer, the other CEO, uh, and and you need a good partnership in order to have this sort of succeed longer term. Uh, just out of curiosity, do you ever uh, recommend to your clients looking at how dysfunctional their family is, uh, that selling the business is really their best option if you want to treat your family fairly and you don't want to cause them to be in litigation later. Um, sell the business and give them cash and be done with it. We do. We also recommend uh, bringing in professional management because that's another way to, to, to deal with the issue. If the family's going to, if, if they want the business to stay in the family and they don't think they're going to be able to reconcile the uh, resentment of, of insiders and outsiders uh, within the family uh, group, uh, bringing in professional uh, management uh, is a good alternative. How often does that happen where you make that, that recommendation and, and the recommendation is taken? It really depends on the size of the business. I mean, if you have a business that's, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue where you can really afford to go out and get top professional outside talent, uh, it's, it's a, an alternative that is uh, often uh, taken advantage of. Let me ask you, you each get one kind of freebie. Uh, we're about ending our show. So tell me your advice to the entrepreneur who's in his or her 50s, and they are intelligently starting to think about transitioning their business, and they've got, in their view, at least a 10-year runway. What do you tell them? Jim, you start. Well, I like what Stephanie said earlier. This is not an event. Estate planning is not an event. Uh, family governance is not an event. It's, it's a process. And so uh, my advice to that individual is uh, get started and uh, stick to it. Stephanie? Yeah, I, I would echo Jim's uh, opinion. You, you, need, you need to start, and maybe you just start with a family meeting and get every, everybody to start to articulate what are their hopes and fears about this process going forward. Uh, I would also encourage folks, you know, in, in addition to developing a routine of regular family meetings, to, to start to build in some, some rules of the game and some governance, right? You want to have some policies, and ideally you put together some of these policies before you actually need them. Uh, because if it starts to be, you know, who gets to work in the business and it's the time the first kid is knocking at the door, it's all about that kid, right? So, so you want the prenup for the business. Uh, I want, yes. I, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> it goes back to when I was a Boy Scout, the Scoutmaster used to ask us, what's the hardest step on a 20-mile hike? And it's the first one. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, we're going to start wrapping up the show. I know our listeners may have follow-up questions. How could they contact you if they wanted to, do, to, to talk to you? Jim. My email address is uh, jimspratt at bowdenspratt.com. And do you have a website? It says uh, bowdenspratt.com. Oh, you just said that. I'm yeah. not leaving listening. Uh, <laughs> Stephanie, how would they contact you if they want to talk, talk to you? Yeah, likewise, email is the best way. So it's my last name, which is quite a mouthful. <laughs> B as in boy, R U N as in Nancy, D as in David, E, P as in Peter, O N as in Nancy, T as in Tom, E, T as in Tom, at thefbcg.com and we also have a website which is thefbcg.com lots of articles and good mm -hmm. good insights and all of that would be on our website if you click on it uh, today we want to thank everybody for listening to Wealth Matters where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth 
Remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag, Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Stephanie Brune de Ponte and Jim Spratt. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Thank you.